Good evening, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful United States of America. Today is the 11th of November, 2020, and I would be remiss not to mention that today is Veterans Day. My father was a veteran in World War II, so I honor him. I know that originally this was called Armistice Day because it was when World War I ended officially. And so I um, want to hearken back even to that first world war and honor all of our veterans. So um, I'm gonna get started right now. Recall that I do authentic biochemistry because I have nothing better to do. We've been talking about aging and about the immune system. We've been doing a great deal of um, extensive detail on transcription factors, biochemical pathways, signaling mechanisms, cellular interactions. And we're gonna continue that, of course. So right now I'm gonna give you um, a synoptikos, uh, which is Greek for um, synoptic, which is Latin. And what that means from the Greek is viewed together. So taking all the material we discussed and basically synthesizing it into a very short um, reminder of where we're at. So, and this is only in the uh, recent or the past perfect tense. I'm not going to go all the way back to the, uh, to the lectures that we've been doing now for almost two months. So what I've done is I've demonstrated the transcription factors like NIFL3 and ID2 can act to suppress other transcription factor activity thus redirecting gene expression. And I told you that these uh, transcription factors, because they do um, a suppression of other transcription factors, we would call them suppressor transcription factors. And so that's what I'm gonna start calling them, even though I don't know if the literature necessarily says that, uh, uh, gives them that name. So the suppressor transcription factors also regulate besides um, disactivating transcription factors that would normally act in trans to enhance gene expression during chromatin remodeling. These suppressor transcription factors also regulate acetylation and methylation of chromatin DNA and histones. So to reinforce transcriptional valency is one reason that they perform that uh, function, or to either plastically or elastically redirect cogent gene expression patterns as signaling through such enzymatic activity as DNA methyltransferases, histone acetyltransferases, sirtuins, which are, of course are deacetylases, and DNA demethylases. That, and all of those enzymes are themselves under transcriptional and post-translational control. And what I call ectopic protein-protein aggregational integration during active transcriptional battles to control cellular fate. And finally, these transcription factors work via signaling long-distance cellular responses, including interactions among epithelia, antipresenting cells, such as dendritic cells and macrophages, 
ILCs, remember those are um, innate like lymphocytes. TH cells, which of course are the T effector lineages from CD4 positive. CD8 positive lineage of, of uh, uh, T effector cells. T reg cells, as well as complement B cell IgG secretion, and yes, even natural killer cells. So these two transcription factors that we're talking about, infill 3 and ID2, play a role in all of that interaction associated with, at the molecular level, at the gene expression level, of immune cells mediating responses with epithelia in various organ systems in the human body. And I also have mentioned to you that those same two transcription factors are associated with the clock. So that's part three of my synapticals. These processes are observed in clock gene mechanisms. Of course, that can, and these things control sleep-wake cycle via pineal and non-pineal associated Zeitgeber modulation that may become corrupted as aging generates the SASP phenotype. Remember, that's the senescence-associated secretory phenotype, along with telomerase decay. Those two systems are associated directly with human aging. And a scala of chronic inflammatory plus mutational frequencies and epimutational frequencies all of which are, can be associated with chronic uh, reactive oxygen species production. Okay, get all that? <clears throat> this pathobiochemical turning over time then ultimately presents with a pathophysiology indicative of what I can call elder senescence, including neurodegeneration, sarcopenia, and the potentiation for tumorogenesis and apoptosis working independently to drive down normal physiology and the metastable homeostasis, normally engendering a healthy life up to a certain tipping point along that aging axis. So that's my synoptic for where we've been for the last six lectures up to this point. Okay, so I'm gonna go back to when we're talking about this paper on the GI tract. Remember that gastrointestinal tract serves as a major site for primary infection. It can. Uh, we know that from uh, inflammatory bowel disorders, for example. Ulcerative colitis is one of them. Crohn's disease is another. So you know that they can be a primary site of infection and therefore inflammation. But they can also be the entry point of pathogens entering circulation. And the GI tract is also associated with the immune response at the mucosal surface. And that actually provides one of the first barriers to invading pathogens. So as IELs, I remember what those are. Those are intestinal epithelial cells, right? They have a predominant role in excluding pathogens in the intestine through their cytolytic activity and or their inflammatory cytokine production. They, uh, they, can, they have been investigated with an impaired number of IELs and cytokine production of IECs, right? So you have IELs, which are lymphocytes, that are linked into via um, protein, 
protein interactions that usually involve um, polypeptides that allow for a gathering and an aggregation of the epithelial cells in the small intestine with these IELs, which of course are the, the immune-associated epithelial lymphocytes. And remember, we were talking about their interactions in a null mouse that they were that they generated, and it's null in a gene called ID2. And we talked about ID2, we're gonna talk a lot more about it uh, directly. Now, the experiment they were doing involved classical 5-FU treatment. Now, that's a way of um, looking at DNA synthesis by blocking its synthesis and then isolating DNA fragments. They looked at that, they used 5-FU, that's 5-fluorouracil. They also looked at a decreased survival rate and they looked at enhanced numbers of enterobacteria in the liver and the spleen in ID2 double knockout mice. So that phenotype promoted the premise that the intestinal barrier function is severely impaired in those knockout mice, the ones that are knocked out with this gene called ID2. This suggested that the ID2 null mutant mice could provide a good model for studying GI disorders, okay? Now, in addition to the ID2 double negative mice, double knockout, um, they themselves, the phenotype I just gave you, remember that they're also unique other, uh, as opposed to other gene deficit mice, in that they show a defect in intestinal lymphocytes because of the interaction, right? The protein-protein interaction between the lymphocyte and the epithelial cells. And also a, a host of uh, cytokines such as uh, interleukin-7, interleukin-7 receptor, interleukin-2 receptor beta, um, all of those um, deficient mice, gene deficient mice, also show an interaction between the intestinal lymphocytes and the epithelial cells. But the ID2 have unique characteristics compared to those. And look at seven, and look at seven receptor, and look at two, R, two receptor. Um, and those are all distinct phenotypes from the ID2 double. So it looks like the ID2 null mice show an impairment of lymphocytes rather than selectively in the intestine. And so you get a generalized reduction in these immune epithelial lymphocytes and then even a stronger effect on thymus-derived IEL subsets. It's going to be the naive cells. So further investigation of this ID2 double knockout mouse is definitely a good thing to do because you might be able to then understand how development occurs between lymphocytes and the intestine uh, in mammals and also what goes awry during infection. Now, why is all this important? It's important because intestinal disorders are also very common as you age and because the gene regulation is involving the immune response. And because of that, um, it fits into the hierarchy tectonic of our discussion. Now, the immune response is what eventually causes senescence, and that senescence then leads to the aging, morbidity, and final mortality of the human. Uh, the paper published in Oncogene in 2003, and that's why the reason I'm going here will be understandable directly. Oncogene, volume 22, uh, pages 1 through 9, and it was published in 2003, so 17 years ago. It talks about these ID proteins, okay? 
it tells me that they're helix loop helix proteins. That means they're going to bind to DNA, but they lack the basic amino acid domain necessary to intercalate within the DNA. So ID proteins function in a dominant negative manner by sequestering ubiquitously expressed E proteins, E12, E47, and E2-2, or cell-restricted systems such as the tau one D, And those are all basic helix loop, helix transcription factors. So ID looks like a transcription factor. It has the HLH, but it doesn't have a specific binding domain that's necessary for it to actually be a, a, an authentic transcription factor. So what it does basically is compete with transcription because it, it, it competes with all those E proteins um, and then all those cell-restricted um, transcription factors I just mentioned, which are all basic HLH um, card-carrying transcription factors. So they regulate transcription factors that are involved, the ID proteins, regulate transcription factors that are involved in developmental processes, and there's a lot of them that are very significant to our discussion. Myogenesis, neurogenesis, bone morphogenesis, lymphopoiesis, hematopoiesis, and myeloid differentiation. So you see the whole range of cell types that you know are going to be important for aging, right? So ID2 double knockout mice lack lymph nodes, okay? And they also lack payers patches. Uh, note on that in a moment. And they show a reduced population of natural killer cells, which is what I mentioned at the beginning in the synopticals. Now, ID proteins are also involved in cellular proliferation processes. And the growth suppressive activity of retinoblastoma proteins, the RB proteins, is actually reversed by ID2 through physical interactions between those proteins, between those two proteins, RB and ID2. So high levels of ID2 reverses the growth suppressive activity of cyclin-dependent kinase inhibitors. These include P16 and P21. Furthermore, cell and cell cycles is all standard molecular genetics. Furthermore, the oncoproteins of the MYC family require ID2 to bypass the reg regulatory function of the RB. Thus, ID2 is definitely a protein required to maintain the timing of differentiation in mammalian development. And as such, it's also a potent effector in tumorigenic processes of human cancer because these are the same genes which become dysregulated during oncogenesis. Now, I, met, I said I would explain what payers patches were. Of course, you medical doctors know what they are. Um, pay, and, and so you, the nurse population are listening to these lectures. But payers patches are, are what are they? They are small masses of lymphatic tissue, and it's found throughout the ileum region of the small intestine. They, have been, they were originally known as aggregated lymphoid nodules, so you know that they're lymphoid in character. And indeed, they form an important part of the immune system by monitoring intestinal bacteria populations, the biofilms we talked about, and thus prevent the growth of pathogenic bacteria in the intestines. Okay? So virus, virus patches are really important. And I told you a couple minutes ago that ID2 double knockouts don't have virus patches. Uh, so that tells you that the small intestine and its mucosal lining and its um, accented um, mechanism of controlling pathogenesis through that 
small intestine is totally gone in ID2 double macros. So, possible function of a couple of other proteins I want you to understand can be disrupted by ID2. So first of all, RB can bind to E2F. And if it binds to E2F, it will carry out the function of protein translation. However, uh, verse transcription and translation, however, RB, if in the presence of ID2, will be removed from that E2F protein, and then you'll lose the function of the E protein transcription, and thus translational phenomena. So there's chromosomal translocation specifically linked to something called the Ewing sarcoma family. The Ewing sarcoma family results in the generation of fusion proteins, and that com comprises the amino terminal portion of the EWS, that's the protein, and the DNA binding domain of protein called ETS, which are called transcription, which are indeed uh, canonical transcription factors. So you make an EWS, ETS, chimeric protein, and that now will act as an aberrant, that is unregulated transcription factor, and that leads to tumorogenesis, okay? So in the presence of ID2, EWS, uh, which would normally go to C-MIC, is not able to do it because it binds to ID2. When in the presence of ID2 then, the transcription factors that are in class A, which are ubiquitous, normally would go to form a dimer of AB, and a transcription factor known as B, which only occurs temporarily, would also normally form an uh, AB complex. Neither one of those are going to occur in the presence of ID2. Okay? So, the possible function of the EWS-ETS chimeric proteins in tumorogenesis is that those fusion proteins activate, actually activate, the expression of the ID2 gene directly, but also indirectly as a result of activating C-MIC. So the transcription factors EWS and ETS turn on ID2 transcription, but EWS, ETS, that uh, fusion protein, which is found in this tumor, this tumor system, um, also makes C-MIC, and C-MIC then goes on as a transcription factor to make ID2 form. So both cases, the higher levels of ID2 protein enhance cell cycle progression. They do so by inactivating, as I just mentioned to you at the beginning, the RB protein family okay, of normal transcriptional regulation. So that means that the ID2 protein interferes with ubiquitous basic helix loop, helix class A proteins to form heterodimers with the tissue-specific class B proteins, which we talked about, and subsequently inhibits precursor cells to differentiate into a certain lineage. So it prevents terminal differentiation. So that's another more classical interference of transcription that I told you ID2 is associated with. But you see it's, it's inherently and methodically associated with cell cycle. Now, we have another gene fusion called MLLAF9. Now, this is part of the leukemia, the mixed leukemia 
um, disease pattern. The MMLAF9 is a gene fusion, and of course, MLL is the, uh, the disease um, phenotype known as mixed lineage leukemia. Now, in the paper published in Cancer Cell in 2016, issue one, in July of that year, pages 59 and 74, I've learned that low levels of ID2 are actually a poor prognosis for MML, MLL, excuse me, that's the mixed lineage leukemia. But high expression is good. That's because MLL AF9 turns on E proteins, and these, and particularly E2-2. But E proteins will take um, regular resting LSCs and turn them into bulk leukemic cells. Ultimately, those can turn into terminally differentiated cells, which will die. That is the disease phenotype of MLL-AF9. So that fusion protein, because it has transcription factor, turns on E protein, which then will lead to this cascade of events causing terminally differentiated um, lymphocytes, which will then, of course, die. But now MLL-AF9, that same mutant fusion transcription factor that you find in mixed lineage leukemia also turns on um, the expression of uh, ID2. And ID2 then will go on and inhibit the E proteins. Okay, So that's why at low levels of ID2, E proteins are fully active and that allows for terminally differentiated leukemic cells. But at higher concentration, you get an inhibition of the E protein activity, which was turned on by MLLAF9. So you get the idea. These are working in trans. Those transcription factors are working in trans. But ultimately, in this instance, low levels of ID2 are not good. But high levels of ID2 are good because they inhibit that E protein system, which is triggered by the fusion protein, okay? So you get the idea of where we're at now, right? You get the idea that these proteins, uh, such as ID2, have multiple functions in the body, not just the simple case that we're talking about with the immune response. So they're critical in controlling some cancers. That's not, that shouldn't be surprising to you. Now, the AML-ETO fusion protein is actually generated. It comes from a paper published in PNAS in January of just last year, 2019. This is volume 116, page 890 to 899. So I wanted to tell you more about this leukemia. So the AML1 ETO fusion protein, which is generated by a translocation between the 8 and 21 chromosome, so it's an 8, 28 semicolon 21 chromosomal translocation, that's actually causally involved in nearly 20% of acute myeloid leukemia, so the AMLs. In leukemic cells, you get AML1-ETO, and that resides in and functions through a stable protein complex, the AML1-ETO. And that contains a transcription factor complex, or it creates a transcription factor complex called AETFC, C for complex. That itself contains multiple transcription cofactors. Among those are the AETFC components, HEB, and, here we go, the E protein, in this instance, E2A. 
Those are two members of the ubiquitously expressed e-protein family, and they directly interact with the AML1-ETO, and they confer new DNA binding capacity to that AETFC fusion protein. And indeed, that is all essential for leukemogenesis. However, the 30 protein, the one we were just introduced to a minute ago, E2-2, E2 is specifically silenced by the AML1-ETO transcription system. And indeed, in, when AML1-ETO expressing leukemic cells are um, studied. And that suggests, okay, all of that suggests that E2-2 is a negative factor of leukemogenesis, okay? Indeed, ectopic expression of E2-2 selectively inhibits the growth of AML1-ETO expressing leukemic cells, and then inhibition requires the basic helix-loop-helix helix DNA binding domain, okay? Now, doing RNA-seq and chip-seq analyses, these people found that despite some overlap, all three of the E-proteins differentially regulate many target genes. That's no surprise because they're transcription factors. The particular study showed that E2-2 both redistributes this mutant fusion AETFC2 and activates some genes associated with dendritic cell differentiation while it represses mixed target genes. Okay? So in AML patients, the expression of E2T is relatively lower in that translocation phenotype, that A21 transcription uh, uh, chromosomal translocation subtype, and the E22 target gene, THPO, and that's all identified as a potential predictor of relapse in this leukemia. Now, the mouse model of human leukemia, the same type, the translocation between 8 and 21 chromosome, E2T suppression accelerates leukemogenesis. Taken together, the results then suggest that in contrast to HAB and H2A, which facilitate AML1-ETO mediated leukemogenesis, E22 compromises the function of the AETFC and negatively regulates leukemogenesis. The three proteins thus define a heterogeneity of the AETFC complex, which improves overall the understanding of the precise mechanism of leukemogenesis. Now, remember, I just told you that that itself is fundamentally regulated by the ID2 protein. So they didn't discuss this in this paper, but we already know that way back from the paper published 17 years ago. And we know how the ID2 functions, right? In regulating the E22. So actually that's one more component in the system. So I'm gonna stop there because I know I introduced a couple of new gene systems and I wanted to do that so that you got a full breadth of understanding of the complexity of ID2. As I told you, the ID2, again, is one of these, I guess you could call them faux or pseudo transcription factors. They have a helix loop, helix domain structure, but it's not a basic amino acid sequence. Therefore, it has terrible binding to DNA. But what it does do is bind and aggregate two other transcription factors with the BHLH complex um, um, structure, okay? And in so doing then, 
it alters the regulation of a whole suite of genes, but it does it in a completely covert way. Because if you didn't know that ID2 was functioning like this, you would think that just simply it would be regulated by the level of those transcription factors, or maybe by the availability of the chromatin remodeling for the cis-acting elements in the promoter regions of the genes that would normally be regulated by those beta HLA transcription factors. Okay? That's what I want you to keep in mind. We went through this complexity because we're going to continue on this process so that you get the full understanding of how transcription, translation, and the mechanisms that involve signaling around that system ultimately lead to chromatin remodeling that becomes corrupted in the senescent cell and therefore in the elder aging um, phenotype. Okay, so we're going to stop there and um, we're going to tell you that uh, the reason I did this lecture was because I had nothing better to do and that it's that means it's a great thing to do and uh, that of course uh, we're going to stop here we'll continue on with this Fascinating discussion and illustration of transcription factors in aging. This is Dr. Daniel J. Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry. Uh, bye for now.